Warning, this podcast may contain content and discussions of a graphic and mature nature. Some material may be inappropriate for children, and strong adult language may be present. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Devil's Hour, a podcast for the strange and unusual. I'm your host, Darius, and this week I have with me a good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Michael, and he's going to be the guest host for this series. Hi, I'm Michael, the guest host for this series. <laughs> Appreciate you being here, Michael. Um, so the topic we're going to be covering today, or the person, rather, um, we're going to be talking about David Parker Ray, also known as the Toy Box Killer. Um, in terms of... In terms of like brutality and um, just really, I don't even know how to describe it, evilness. Like if there is like an evilness scale from on a scale of one to 10. Funny you mentioned that there actually is. Is there really? Yeah, one of the documentaries I looked up mentioned uh, that there is a scale of evil that forensic scientists have to label some of their uh, subjects. If I can wow. find it, there it is. Uh, yeah, I was watching this uh, documentary that was on that was from Discovery Channel. They had a series called Most Evil, and season one, episode four, was Most Evil Partners in Crime, obviously mentioning David and Cindy. Uh, and here, they uh, apparently the scale was created by Dr. Michael Stone, which is a forensic psychiatrist from Columbia University, and he uh, <clears throat> he came up with the scale of evil, and it lists levels from one through twenty-two, um, with People like David obviously being on the highest wow. level 22, but then uh, someone like Cindy, who is more of a follower of him, uh, on level like about 16, 17, somewhere around there. Wow. Um, yeah. So this is an actual scale, huh? Yeah, it's an actual scale of evil. Uh, I don't know if they <laughs> label it like that, but that's the way they yeah. worded it in the documentary. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, obviously it's not awesome that people exist who are I know, evil. it's so hard to, <laughs> it's so hard to not sound crazy when talking about stuff like that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, like, where I was going with it is just that, like, this, because uh, obviously, you know, I, I'm very fascinated with serial killers and true crime in general, so I've definitely studied a lot about different, various serial killers, mm-hmm. but this guy is definitely, in my opinion, on the list. If I had my own personal scale of 1 to 10, this guy would probably be, like, an 11. You know? Yeah. He's fucking... Turned uh, it up to 11. Yeah, he definitely... He's... he's um, He's a whole other breed and, you know, he's, he's crazy. Um, but so just some quick information about the Toy Box Killer before we get into it. And honestly, this there's just so much information surrounding this guy and surrounding his crimes um, that it, this might be – this might turn into a part – like a two-part or three-part series. Um, so but, – but of course, I'll let you guys know um, when we end the, the first part. But yeah, this might be a two-part, three-part series because there's just so much information on it. Um, but yeah, so let's start off with just some quick information. So the Toy Box Killer's real name is uh, David Parker Ray. Um, he was a sexual sadist who abducted, tortured, raped, and murdered women from the time he was 15 years old, beginning in 1954, to the day of his capture on March 22nd, 1999. Um, this means that David Parker Ray had a 45-year crime spree, 
and detectives estimate that he had over 60 victims during his crime spree. Um, yet he was never actually convicted of any murders. Yeah. Which is... Nobody's found. Nobody's found. Which is like every documentary's favorite tagline. Like, no bodies <laughs> were ever found. Like, that's not as interesting as it sounds, bro. Yeah, right? <laughs> so something to brag about, but... Yeah. Um, and the Toy Box Killer, he's most well-known not only for, obviously, the Toy Box, which was his, like, uh, we can call it sexual torture chamber, but also for the escape of his final victim, um, who told police of his, you know, sadistic nature as well as the horrors of his sexual torture um, that she experienced, obviously. Um, David Parker Ray would take many of his victims back to his home in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. So he was a killer based out of New Mexico where he would carry out his sinister deeds. Um, so the reason he's called the Toy Box Killer is because he had a trailer that he kept in sort of like the backyard of his house, on his property, um, behind his house. And he nicknamed it the Toy Box. Um, he actually spent over $100,000 building it um, and soundproofing it and, you know, filling it with a bunch of toys and gadgets, homemade torture devices. It's a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, so we know right off the bat that this guy's very smart and very good with his hands. I guess you could say like he was a mechanic, so he was good. Yeah. They were always talking about, um, how proficient he was with engineering. He would even like invent things to use at, uh, at work when he was working at the state park. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, when you see it, I saw it, it was in a do video documentary. It was like a snake catcher, which kind of looks like a dog catcher type thing. Okay. It was basically a long pole with a rope through it. So when you pull the rope, it tightens the loop, catches the animal. Oh. But it was a little eerie because it was like, I could totally see how he could use that on one of his victims. Yeah, you know? for sure. Uh, just, and that is, that's always like a sad thing to kind of see that like, you know, with a lot of these serial killers... They're like so, um, they're brilliant. so gifted, yeah, Smart. and brilliant, and they always use it for like obviously the wrong things for evil, you know. Um, but it's like, what if they just used it for the right things or just something that helped the world? Maybe yeah. they could, we'd have more people like uh, Elon Musk, you know, or uh, yeah, the guy who invented Bitcoin or <laughs> Dogecoin. <laughs> um. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, Dave's Coinbase. <laughs> yeah. Right? We'd have things that would help our society, like, you know, spicy ketchup from Whataburger or uh, uh, Chick-fil-A sauce. Oh, God, just... Chick-fil-A sauce. <laughs> Dude, I actually just... I hate that it's Sunday. Right? <laughs> I, I actually bought a bottle of Chick-fil-A sauce there now. They sell that They're shit? selling them, dude. Yeah. I Fuck. bought it at H-E-B, like, last week. It's at H-E-B? It's at H-E-B, yeah. Pause this shit. We're going. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, so just kind of uh, continuing with the whole, like interesting facts of what he did. Um, I hate to call this fact interesting, but unfortunately it's just part of what he did. Um, it's intriguing. It's like, intriguing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, let me, let me go ahead and help you buffer that just because, um, like I said, it's hard to be interested in these things and not be considered like really weird. And, yeah. um, I was actually reading the book, uh, on David Parker Ray, uh, at a discount tire. What was it called? Um, What's the book called? Oh, yeah. The book is uh, Slow Death. It's by Jim Fielder, uh, which, as I was telling you earlier, Jim Fielder was actually there, as far as I know, based from this book, he was actually there kind of watching the trials as it happened and, wow. you know, wrote his book based off of everything he witnessed. He got to get real close with, like, the uh, district attorney and the judges and prosecutors and everything that were involved with the case. And so that's where he got a lot of his info. 
to my knowledge. Um, but yeah, I was reading the book, um, uh, in public. So when somebody asked me about <laughs> it, I was real hesitant to like explain it. Cause I don't ever want to be looked at as like, oh, why are you into that stuff? You know, kind Dude. of thing. Um, <laughs> but this guy was like really cool. He was like, no, you know why people are interested in things like that? It's an instinctual, uh, thing for survival. People want to learn about stuff like that because they want to be able to protect themselves from that, you know? And I guess he was kind of leaning towards like, it's also somewhat of a subconscious thing. Cause not once did I ever think to myself like, oh yeah, let me protect myself from, you know, a sexual <laughs> serial rapist and killer. Uh, oh, well, you, you know, know. No, I just started reading the book like and I was like what the hell's going on with this guy I just kept trying to finish the book and that's kind of one of the advantages of one of the um I don't know what the luxuries we have as being a male I mean like not to say sex crimes don't happen against men they do but if you look at the statistics it like the the number of crimes far outweigh with with women you know against women because unfortunately they're they're labeled as easy targets yeah uh, which is why if I ever have daughters, they're totally gonna, you know, learn some kind of martial art. I'm yeah. gonna like, I myself have to learn how to how to shoot so I can teach them how to shoot. And, you know, do all kinds of stuff because unfortunately, sh- this shit's really on quite an unfair world. How they're more susceptible, not not susceptible, uh, more at risk. It's just, yeah, more. Thank you. More at risk for stuff like this, and you know. Yeah, it, it's terrible. Hundred percent. Yeah, man. Um, kind of like what you were saying, based on like how you were, you know, just reading a book and someone like was asking you about it. Yeah. Uh, that reminded me. I was at when I used to work at a bank. I was reading. We had a lot of like t- downtime. So on our like kind of slow periods, I was reading. Uh, I remember I was reading Robert Graysmith's Zodiac, Zodiac book. Yeah. Uh, and like one of my friends, he worked in a different department, passed by, and he's like really like you know he's really like like a bro. If any of you know what a bro is, just like. Guy who like lifts weights and into oh, like yeah. sports, like, dude, bro, like, well, bro, like, yeah. good talk, bro. <laughs> yeah. Let's go lift, bro. Exactly, cool guy. We're we're friends for sure. But he passed by and he was like, "Bro, what are you reading?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm reading Zodiac. Yeah, it's about the." He's like, "Like the serial killer?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Bro, like, do I need? Do I need like? Do you need help or something?" <laughs> <laughs> he was I need joking. To be extra nice to you. Yeah. So you don't come in here when you shoot everybody up and kill me. Exactly. He get, he had like the weirdest look. I mean, he was joking, but like still, yeah. you know, you, you get those kind of reactions from people who yeah. are into the same kind of thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, so it just reminded me of that. I thought it was pretty interesting. But yeah. but uh, so what I was gonna say is that so the toy box obviously the toy box killer um, he was you know a rapist uh, he tortured and, and abducted women. Um, but one of the, the craziest things that he did that I've never heard any other serial killer do or serial rapist for that matter is he involved bestiality in his crimes and rapes. Um, not all of them, but he did use it, um, quite a few times. So what he would do is according to one of the only survivors who recounted, um, you know, her story, uh, she said that David Parker Ray forcefully inserted gravy into her vagina um, so that a dog could remove the contents against her will, which is in- absolutely insane. And yeah. on top of that, um, he would actually like bend the girl over. Um, cause obviously like he had a gyne- gyne- uh, gynecological, yeah, that- gynecological. Yeah. Table. So he would bend which her. I think he actually built himself. It wasn't like an official yeah. table. He rigged it up himself. I'm sorry. Go on. No, no, no. You're, you're, yeah, yeah you're hundred percent right. Um, I think he built it out of a, uh, bench press table. The fuck? Okay. Yeah. I don't know how he's, I don't know. He's really smart, but he's also sick. So whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so 
he, he would like bend the girl over and he would um, bring bring his dog and he would like force his dog essentially, um, obviously force the girl, but force the dog to, to have sex with the girl. I forgot what he would do to like kind of get the dog because dogs don't inherently like want to yeah, have yeah, sex with no, humans. Obviously. You have to like somehow like, and I don't, okay. I was starting to lean into that, uh, almost making it sound like I know how. Uh, I don't know how <laughs> to do that. Yeah. But I was to think you have to somehow get the dog aroused and yeah. to where it'll, you know, because a dog's a dog. It's probably going to hump anything once you get it going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think he gave that. the dog, <laughs> I think he gave the dog some sort of like uh, animal equivalent of like Viagra. Oh, to get Jesus it to get Christ. its hormones like amped up like crazy to where it just like wants to have sex yeah. and he would essentially just he would essentially like lead the dog and i don't know like what that whatever i'll let you use your imagination he would essentially like i'd rather not yeah <laughs> he would essentially guide the dog like into like into the into his victims you know pri- you know private area uh and yeah so the dog would like have sex with with his victims and that's just insane to me that's absolutely crazy one of the reasons why this guy and in my opinion, is definitely like an 11 on the scale of evil of one to 10. Um, just crazy and, and sick all around. Um, but so th- those were just some quick, interesting facts, interesting and disturbing facts about the toy box killer. So I want to get into kind of like his story. Um, we're going to, I'm going to start off by going into like his, his, um, his early years, his formative years and his early crimes. Uh, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Uh, so <clears throat> let's get into that. Um, David Parker Ray was born in, I think it's pronounced Belen, New Mexico, or Belen, New Mexico. Yeah, yeah it's B E L E N. So I think Belen, or Belen. I've heard it pronounced either way. So um, we'll just say Belen. Um, but yeah, David Parker Ray was born in Belen, New Mexico, on November sixth, nineteen thirty-nine. His parents were Cecil and Nettie Ray, um, and he had a sister named Peggy. David's childhood was very unpleasant and had all the ingredients to create a serial killer, unfortunately. Um, His father, Cecil Ray, was a violent alcoholic, and it was here that David Parker Ray was first introduced to pornography and BDSM, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Because in an attempt to bond with his son in some kind of sick and twisted way, his father would show him violent pornographic photos and drawings, and these images stuck with David for the rest of his life, essentially. Um, Not much is known about his mother, Nettie, but we do know that she moved in with her sister once her husband's abuse became too much for her. Um, and we don't know that, or we do know that she often neglected David, so she wasn't exactly the best mother either. So he was getting abuse from his father, who was an alcoholic, and he was also suffering, suffering a different kind of abuse, which is neglect from his mother. Um, so they moved in with his aunt. David said that his aunt watched him when he was an adolescent, um, and while his mother wasn't around, he claimed that he was he was left alone with her and that his his aunt would force him to have sex with her. Um, this is all in his journal, I believe. And it's not clear how young he was when the sexual abuse from his aunt started, but it reportedly lasted for years. So it lasted a good amount of time. Um, definitely enough to traumatize anyone, you know? Oh, one incident would traumatize you, but for years, um, you definitely see that. And... So his aunt would um, force David to engage in twisted sexual fantasies and would make him hurt her for her own pleasure. Uh, so David's aunt was a, a masochist, and unfortunately, David's sexual abuse and dark experiences with his aunt mixed with the graphic and violent pornographic content that his father pushed on him 
shaped David's sexual preferences and tendencies um, at, a, at an early age. Uh, from that point on, at such a young age, um, he would forever associate sexual pleasure and fulfillment with the pain and torture of others. So um, kind of a, as you can see there, I, and I've touched on this before in, in previous episodes, but um, the, kind of the whole back to the conversation of like nature versus nurture aspect. Yeah. Um, I definitely believe that uh, sometimes it is nature, you know, um, but in my personal opinion and just from what I've learned from, from reading and researching uh, true crime in general, I believe that like 90% of the time it's, it's nurture. Um, yeah. 90% of the time it's nurture. I mean, there are some instances, of course there's outliers, some instances where it is like people are just born evil. Like they're raised with loving, caring parents, no abuse at all, no traumatic, crazy traumatic experiences, but they just born to kill and they born to, you know, just do crazy things. Um, but yeah, so I think for sure nature or nurture is, um, in most instances, what create serial killers. Um, and I think we really see that with David David Parker Ray and how he was raised, you know, because um, he was obviously abused as a kid. In the early 1950s, David and his sister Peggy moved in with his uh, paternal grandmother in Mountain Air, New Mexico. She lived on a farm, and David Ray would say that she never really paid him much attention or, or acknowledgement, except to scold him from time to time. Um, he described her as overly strict and neglectful, and so David spent most of his time alone on the ranch, just exploring the land. Um, and it was during this time alone that David began developing his creative skills and honing his ability to build and fix different machinery. Uh, he would often like go to the, go to junkyards and find like old broken engines and he would take them apart and then put them back together and was able to fix them and get them running again, which is impressive for, for someone of any age to do, Yeah. but someone in his teens, that, yeah, that young, like, that is super impressive. You know, it's like a prodigy, uh, I guess as mechanics, as far as mechanics go and engineers. Um, so from an early age, you know, we can see the ingenuity and creativity and skill that David Parker Ray had and was already displaying. Um, David Parker Ray would soon begin to apply his creativity and skill to his sexual fantasies and desires. David began writing down his sexual desires and ideas in uh, these journals that he had. And he began sketching ideas he had for previous, uh, I'm sorry, for perverse sexual inventions intended to create sexual pain. Um, he once said that his sexual fantasies began when he was just 10 years old, as he would imagine raping and harming young girls with a broken beer bottle. Um, and, from, and from there, like his sexual fantasies and desires only got worse, because um, for years, David just kept all this pent up like sexual aggression and energy, um, and like I guess desire, um, until he claimed his first victim in 1956 when he was 15 years old. Um, so most of everything we know about the Toy Box Killer's early life uh, and crimes really come from his own writings in his various journals. So it's in a way it's good because it's coming from like his own, it's coming from the source itself, you know? Yeah. Uh, so we know that it's fairly accurate. Um, and so he kept these detailed journals as a way for him to, to like, mem what's the right word for it? Um, memorialize, memorialize, uh, is that a word? Uh, kind of like he's writing his memoirs. Is what is that what you're going for? Yeah, like kind of like you know how we like to shit document. Yeah, I feel like there's another word you're looking for. I can't think. I, of I think yeah. So it's <laughs> like whatever you know how we like build statues to like to it's like in memory of something to kind of like honor something. Oh, yeah, memorialize. It's, yeah, so he does it in a way to memorialize it. Like 
his, he memorializes his past crimes by writing it down in his journals so that he could relive these moments. Yeah. Um, so for him, it was like, yeah, it was documentation, but it, for him, it was more so like, I, I got so much pleasure from this that I want to be able to relive it at any moment just by opening my journal and, you know, recounting these details. Um, so yeah. Um, and then because David Parker Ray only wrote down the information he cared to remember, um, he often did not identify or write down the names of his victims, um, which really sucks because later on in investigations, this would cause a lot of issues in terms of trying to convict him of some, of murder. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, especially with some of the ways that he would um, document it. Like, I remember when I was reading the book, there's a, there's a part where it lists that there was a sort of like on a clipboard in his toy box or in the trailer. Uh, he just had like a list of people he kidnapped and he didn't bother writing their names. He didn't give a damn about who they were. He just wrote down the date that they were kidnapped and then there was like these little like tally marks by each date, you know, ranging anywhere from like 15, 23, all the way up to like 53, 57. And one can only wonder like what that even means. Cause he didn't like leave it of all the detail he went through with a bunch of other stuff. This one particular chart didn't have details. It was just a date and these tally marks. And it's like, what does that mean? Is that like how many people he, how many times he raped them? Uh, how many times he tortured them both? Like, what mm. What does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah, um, I do remember seeing that. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, so, because he did not... he did, So, yeah, he didn't ever write down the name of his victims. Because, like you said, he didn't even give... He didn't really care to, to do that. Um, he also did not disclose what he did with them or their bodies after he was done with them. Um, in the journals... The information his journal entries did do give us, however, you know, is the year of his attacks, um, the length of the abduction, the estimated age of his victims, and some extra notes that describe like what he did to them while he would while he held them captive. Um, another thing that the journal had was David's ranking system that he used. Um, so I didn't know if I don't know if you used you knew about this, uh, but he would actually rank his victims from one to three. Uh, one he would give them he would rank them as one if they were pretty. Uh, two, if you found them average or three, if you found them unattractive. So interesting. Yeah. I'd never really heard about that. until I started really digging deep. Yeah. Into I don't recall that at all. Yeah. This guy. Um, yeah. So he was obviously, what is it? A misogynist? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's misogynistic. Yeah. David's first journal entry was in 1955 when he was 15 years old. Uh, he claims his first victim was about 15 years old as well, so the same age as him. Journal states that this was his first sexual experience ever, which, so I guess he's not, like, counting the sexual experiences that he had with his aunt, because obviously that was technically uh, rape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he said this is his first sexual experience. Um, the journal states that uh, they pretended it was rape, what they were doing. Um, he tied her tied her up, spread her apart between two trees while he played with her, it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in his notes, he claims that the unnamed girl enjoyed the experience very much. Yeah. Um, it is a possibility that this encounter was consensual, but even if it was, you know, receiving consent wouldn't be something that David would continue to need or get yeah. in his future experiences. But yeah, so, I mean, we don't really know for sure if this, 
if this uh, first journal entry was consensual. I mean, he says it was. Yeah. Because with him, it's a real 50-50 coin toss as to whether or not he was uh, telling the truth or just making up some bullshit to try and get out of a harsher sentence or try and not get convicted at all. Yeah. Um, like, he would even sometimes claim that his victims wanted him to do what he did, that he never had anyone, that he never did anything against anyone's will. He just... He was always, he never did anything to them that they didn't want him to do is what he claimed. And like, that was obviously exactly. complete bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's, that's what I was thinking of as well is the reason like he actually is a liar. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, he did say that. I think even during the trial, he'd said that originally that like, oh, all these women that were in the, in <clears throat> the toy box, they were there consensually and they were consenting yeah. to it. They were just into BDSM or whatever. Yeah. Um, so David's, uh, David's second journal entry was in 1956, and he states that this date was his first kidnapping and first rape. Um, he states that the victim was very pretty and about 16 years old. He also states that he kept his victim for a whole weekend and listed the, the location as Pine Shadow Tent. Um, I can stop you right there real quick. Sure. Sorry. I mean, we're going to have a lot of tangents. That's just me. That's, that's no, what's yeah, like that's, talking to me. Yeah. Like, uh, that is Michael. The the uh, there's not just one rabbit hole we're gonna go down. There's gonna be a lot of rabbit holes. Uh, <laughs> what do you call it? Um, how old? Do we know how old he was about that time? Yeah, fifteen. Oh, you said it. Yeah. Did I not hear that? Oh, uh, he was fifteen in nineteen fifty five, so he was sixteen here in nineteen fifty six. Okay, I was just curious as to just exactly if there was an age gap between him and that victim. Oh, between him and the first victim. Oh, or yeah. this victim. Did. This victim you're talking about. Oh, his about. first rape. His first rape. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it says... No, they're about the same age, yeah, because she was 16. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're essentially the same age. So it looks like he's getting people that are around his age right now. Yeah. As, like, he's starting out, it looks like. Um, so, yeah, so he kept his victim for a whole weekend, and he listed the location as Pine Shadow Tent. The Pine Shadow Trail is a trail in the mountains of New Mexico. So authorities believe... The theory is that... He kidnapped this girl from a small town nearby that trail and forced her up into the mountains where he kept her imprisoned uh, in his tent and, and that's where he raped her. That's, that's what the theory is. Um, this is David's first rape and while that's all David's journal says about the encounter, investigators believe this was also his first murder um, because they believed he buried her body somewhere in the New Mexico desert or in the New Mexico mountains, but her body was never found. And so again, with this case, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, ambiguity here. There's a lot of what ifs, because like I said, in his journals, although they're very detailed, he never states what he does with them after he rapes them and after he tortures them. So we don't know if he, if he murdered her um, or if he let her go. Odds are though, he most likely murdered her um, because I feel like if he raped her and let her go, she probably would have, gone to authorities but then again maybe not because there are there are you know rape victims who don't come forward because they're scared um and they're worried for their own safety so it's one of those things like we really don't know um if she was alive or not because he never says that he murdered her but authorities do believe that was his first murder um <clears throat> so so shortly after his his first rape um david and his sister moved in with his other grandparents and so his maternal grandparents and into a new school uh, and at this new school, you know, some of his classmates, they interviewed some of his classmates later and they described him as he said, they said he was short. Um, and so he, he would have been in high school at the time. So they said he was short about five, six. Um, he would turn red anytime a girl would talk to him. 
Yeah. Um, they claimed he was very awkward and, and shy demeanor and didn't know how to speak to women. He was also bullied by other boys for his short stature and because he was very timid. Um, they would often physically push him around and um, they apparently stole his scooter that he had. Uh, his, I guess someone had bought him a scooter. I think it was his grandparents or his mom had bought him a scooter. And so these people, uh, these kids who were picking on him, they, they stole a scooter and like purposefully were like driving over rocks and stuff to try to damage it. Um, but like, despite all of this, despite this bullying, David never, like, he would never stand up for himself. He would never like pick a fight or try to defend himself. He was just, would just let it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which which is, is a common thing for serial killers because usually the, uh, the reason why they become serial killers is because they're looking for a sense of control. They've never felt like they've had control or uh, been on top, been able to dominate uh, anyone. They've always felt like they're the weaker one and get shoved around. So they want, they have to get someone to succumb to them to make them feel more powerful or something like that. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> definitely. Um, yeah, that's really true, especially when we, well, I mean, obviously we'll get into more of the later crimes in the actual toy box himself, but he, it would make sense because he gains like total control. He has total control in the toy box. That's like yeah. his kingdom, his domain. Um, and Shit, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, because like here, his kingdom. his kingdom, like his twisted kingdom. And psychologists in their studies, kind of like what you were saying, suggest that among rapists, those who were shy and socially withdrawn um, were more likely to kill their victims than those who were not shy or withdrawn. So it's kind of like interesting if, if, um, like if a rapist was was like outgoing, but that's that's kind of crazy to think about because I think about it feels Ted Bundy. Inverted. Yeah, because uh, you would think someone who's more outlandish and outgoing would be able to commit such an extreme crime such as murder, uh, whereas you'd think someone who's very shy and timid is too scared to put the knife to your throat. Yeah, but exactly. I think it might be because people who are usually timid. Um, and get bullied and all that. They, they there's a lot of pent up aggression. So once they finally let it out, that's like, that's like the uh, motivation or the energy they need to push them over that edge and do something so crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. But you were saying Ted Bundy, something about Ted Bundy. Yeah, Bundy. no, I was just saying that. Uh, I thought like because I immediately started thinking about Ted Bundy, and um, I mean Ted Bundy was considered an extrovert. You know, like yeah. very charming, charismatic. Um, Which so but, many of these serial killers apparently are. Right, right. Yeah. But he actually murdered his victims after he raped them. Well, at least some of them, a good amount of them. So that's why I was like, that's interesting that psychologists say that. But again, there's like... Oh, yeah. Because no he basically, he's kind of throwing a monkey wrench in their theory yes. there. You know? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. but, but what about Ted Bundy? But then there's no absolutes. Like, there's not 100% yeah, of anything. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he could have just been that exception. In 1957, his third journal entry describes his abduction and rape of an unknown 16-year-old girl. Uh, he took her to a location labeled BLM Cave Shul which investigators believe was a secluded mining cave somewhere in the wilderness outside of Shul, New Mexico, um, a small community only 12 miles from the mountain air, the city mountain air. Um, so mountain air was where he moved with his, with his grandparents. So he was already living there. So somewhere close by was this secluded little community. 
And I guess this is where he committed his next act. Um, so this cave was uh, so secluded that it still hasn't been found to this day. Um, this was also the first time David had an accomplice in his crimes. So it's interesting to note that. Um, his journal states, quote, Shirley helped me. We made a lot of mistakes. The girl almost got away. So according to his journal, there were a lot of experiments performed on the girl. Um, investigators don't know who Shirley was, how David met her, or how David convinced her to participate in his crimes. Likewise, they don't know what happened to this victim, whether she was killed or not. We don't know. Um, there were no complaints of sexual misconduct or kidnapping, file, uh, kidnapping filed with the police around this time or any time after that. So it's likely that this rape victim was also a murder victim as well. But kind of like how I said earlier, um, she could have been murdered. In all actuality, she probably was murdered. But not all rape victims come forward once they're assaulted. You know, yeah. many of them are are either ashamed, which they don't need to be, but you know they feel that way, obviously. Okay, so so far, like he's committed this act, and this was his first or this rape, and this was his first time having an accomplice. So this girl named Shirley, we don't know much, we don't know anything else about her other than her name. She was. David's accomplice during this time. And again, during this time, he's about 17 years old. Um, and so now he has an accomplice named Shirley and they're doing this. Um, it's just crazy to me to think about like how he was able to get an accomplice so young. Like you're, you're a freaking teenager, what? Like a junior in high school, maybe, senior maybe. Uh, and you're, you're having someone literally rape with you, like abduct someone and rape with you. Like that's just blows my mind. And this isn't the first time, we'll learn more later, but this isn't the first time David Ray gets like an accomplice a female accomplice to help him he has several in fact throughout his life it's crazy yeah. like so he must have some sort of weird ass like charisma or manipulation some sort of something that draws and, and makes these these lost and deranged women believe him that they should follow him and help him with these crimes i think it has a, a lot to do with the psychology of the women um that manage to end up getting uh, I guess you could say seduced in more ways than one by um, by people like David Parker because right? when I was watching that documentary about most evil partners in crime most of them were male-female pairings and it was always that the female was madly in love with uh, the dude the who male. was uh, out of his mind dragging her into it and changing managing to mold her and change her into what he wanted yeah, it's um, yeah. a great point. Um, okay, so after that, after their first uh, rape together, um, later that same year, David and Shirley abducted another girl. She was a twenty-year-old college student, so now they're going for someone older, uh, and they brought her to the same secluded cave in Shul. Uh, David's journal said that Shirley. Oh, David's journal said, "Quote: Shirley set up, set her up for kidnapping." Um, so this would suggest that Shirley played a more active role in the process, in the crime, that she actually kidnapped her, um, which reveals that, you know, that Shirley's had an active role in kidnapping. Uh, based on David's later crimes, investigators believe that Shirley probably knew this girl and was either, like, the theory is, again, this is just a theory, the theory that they have is that, like, she was probably drinking, this girl, the victim was probably out drinking with Shirley because Shirley was, like, her friend one night, and Shirley invited her to go out with her to this cave and was like, hey, like, I know this cave where we can do drugs and we can drink and we don't have to worry about getting in trouble. Mind you, they're young at this time, right? Um, yeah. So, like, we don't, we don't have to worry about adults, like, catching us and getting on us. Yeah. Uh, let's go to this cave, whatever. So, Shirley and her friend go back to this cave. 
um, and that they believe there that David and Shirley ambushed the girl. Um, David and Shirley, what they do know based on the journals is that David and Shirley pierced the girl's skin with needles and fish hooks uh, over and over, especially in like really sensitive parts of the body. Um, and, you know, they just, while they were doing this, they were just enjoying and reveling in all the pain that they were causing her. And when they were done with her, they likely killed her and buried her in the desert. Um, so that's, that was their second uh, victim together on, on that one. Um, so no one knows, no one knows the exact nature or kind of like relationship that David and Shirley have or had and shared, but based on the evidence, it seems likely that they were romantically involved based on his other relationships with his other like accomplices or women. Um, so they, investigators believe that they were romantic, uh, in high school together. Um, and so after their second victim, they found their third victim by accident. They came across a woman who had a flat tire. Um, so they pulled over and asked if she needed any assistance. After speaking to the woman, they found out that she was 17 years old and alone. So she didn't have anyone to help her. Um, they knew that she didn't have anyone around and this would be like a perfect and easy target for them, unfortunately. Um, as soon as she let her guard down, the pair punched her, gagged her, tied her up, and threw her in the vehicle. Um, they brought her back to the same cave in Shul where they had tortured and raped the previous two victims. Um, once they got her there, they conducted the same torture on this victim as the previous victims. Um, this girl had never been identified, and no one knows if she survived or not. So kind of like the same. They kind of like have an MO at this point. Yeah. Uh, and they're doing it in the same location, which to me is crazy because they still haven't found this cave. And it's been like, what, 50 years? I don't yeah, know. well, I mean, you know, it's uh, I get, on that note, it's been 50 years. Like erosion could happen at any time. Like it could have caved in. On top of that, a really good point that uh, people have made in the research I did recently is in New Mexico, there's just miles and miles and miles of uh, as far as the eye can see of just barren desert uh, you know all kinds of like little canyons and valleys and things like it's basically probably dead body country out there like or wow. places like that you know because it's so easy to find caves and holes and uh, different things in the landscape that you could just easily hide a body in or if you were the type of killer to cut your victim into pieces and spread them out across, like, there is literally a vast void of places for you to leave the body. So it's like... Exactly. And, and I'm sorry, did they mention that it wasn't an old mine shaft, was it? It was just a cave, right? They said it was a mining cave. Mining cave. Okay, I don't... Because I was to think, like, an official shaft or... Anything that was like an official like mining company would have some records of where it was located, but this probably was just some random. I mean, it could have even been before the whole mi before you had mining companies. It could have just been like a small community there, like hundred plus years ago, was using that cave to mine, and they just they just uh, you know it was never recorded where it was, so they had yeah. no way to figure out where this hole is. They could have just passed right by it and not even knew. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely could have. Um, it still eludes us to this day, yeah. unfortunately. But like you were saying, as far as like kind of it's like a good really New Mexico was a great place. I mean, it, you know, it is it. 
I hate to put it like that, but it was kind of like a perfect place for him to dispose of his victims because it's just so much desert and just like mountains. Yeah. That hiding and scattering remains of victims, it's going to be very, very difficult for anyone to find any traces, especially if you're smart and know what you're doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, unfortunately. So later that same year in 1957, David and Shirley would claim their fourth victim. Uh, they found her at a bus stop. She was 18 years old, and they pretended to befriend her, um, only to take advantage of her trusting nature, and, and they ended up kidnapping her. Uh, they again took her to the same secluded cave and, quote, kept the woman tied to the table with her legs folded back most of the weekend. Um, the violence, that sounds very painful. I know I agree. Like, that yeah. would have been a very painful... Uh, I mean, being stuck in one position of any kind for long periods of time takes a toll on your body. Yeah. So, I mean, that alone is just... For the whole weekend? For like the tired. whole weekend. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, the violence on this victim was escalated uh, as they wanted to try out new things. So, with this victim, David Ray practiced breast bondage for her, uh, or breast bondage on her uh, for the first time. It's a technique involving cutting off blood flow to a woman's breasts. And uh, Shirley pulled out most of the victim's pubic hair. Um, yeah, I've noted of this particular thing before. Not you're saying those things as like, I think it was either in the book or from somewhere else that I did research that I heard this part. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, because when I when they mentioned breast bondage, it made me think of that. Like I'm gonna go ahead and put a piece of myself out there uh, <laughs> uh, like many people. Yeah. Like many 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 people. I myself have viewed a lot of pornography and of course I came across BDSM and you know yeah became a keen to that uh, or liking that um, but I don't I'm not the type no person in the BDSM community that I can think of uh, no person in the BDSM community is uh, for everything <laughs> that that is done so I'll tell you there's a number of things that even I'm that I'm like yeah no that's yeah too much on that note I don't know if you've ever seen breast bondage, but it uh-uh. does not look comfortable at all. Like, really? I mean, I mean, I'm, I get it. I'm a dude. I don't have, I don't have, you know, breasts like that. So it's like, how could I really know? But just look at, just seeing it, I'm like, yeah, no, let's skip over that part. I don't want to see that. <laughs> that yeah, that yeah, looks yeah. horrible. You know, just their flesh bulging out purple Jesus. and just, it just looks like it. And, the most painful thing I can think of. I don't know. That sounds well, yeah. not the most painful thing I could think of. I could probably think of others, but, uh, but yeah, it, it just, when I think about that, I'm just like, man, this, this woman went through a lot. Definitely. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, um, and it's crazy to think that some people on the note of, you know, BDS and pornography, it's crazy to think some people voluntarily go through this. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, it, you know, the, that's what I was going to, I was also going to say this. So I've never actually seen uh, breast bondage. I'm not familiar with it. Obviously, I know that it is a thing. Um, it can it can be like consensually, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but it does sound extremely painful, especially in the way, in the manner that David's doing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So what I was gonna say is just that you know BDSM. Uh, you know, it's just like a a lot of people are into BDSM. It's it's a yeah, it's, it's blown a, it's up a community in the last thing. like ten years. Yeah, and then there's stuff like you know Fet Life yeah. and, and stuff like that. So it's a very um, I was, I was going to say normal because I feel like it's normal for me just because I know a lot of people in the community. Yeah. I know a lot of people who are into it and that's perfectly normal. The, the key here is like consent. 
You know yeah. what I mean? Like BDSM, like whatever, we're not here to tell you what you can and can't do. You know, do whatever makes you happy as long as it's like you're not hurting anyone. As long as yeah. you're not hurting anyone or yourself. Right. And, you know, maybe, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, people weren't uh, so respectful of, um, you know, safety and the well-being of others. But here in the last, like, at least 20 years that I can think of, I mean, I'm only... Not that old, but <laughs> in fifty four. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> He's not fifty four. <laughs> but anyway, my point is, is that um, as I started getting more and more into BDSM myself, uh, uh, safety and consent is very much the like rules one and two. Yep. Like rule one, consent. Rule two, uh, safety. Rule three, refer back to one and two. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but you know, then there's some people like David that, cause I've thought about this before. I think at one point I thought to myself, like, you know, he very easily could have had, like, if he was alive in this time, he easily could have had a lot of willing people. But then I think back to it and I'm like, well, technically when he was younger, he subscribed to BDSM magazines and mm-hmm. sold uh, BDSM devices that he made himself yep. in these magazines. So the community was always there. Yep. Willing people were always there. He, what he wanted was someone who truly was scared, was a scared, was scared and a, there against their will. Yep. He didn't just want to play around with rough sex. He really wanted to hurt people. Yeah. And that's where... Uh, What's, what's the right word? Because if I just say that's where it goes too far, it's like, well, no shit. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't know what exact sentence I'm looking for, but yeah, that's where it's just off the charts. Like, you just can't, that's, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, There's no words. Yeah, There's yeah, no. Words no. And that's that. exactly, there are no words for the kind of behavior. That, but everything you're saying was, was, was uh, I agree with, because he, you know, like you're saying, he did, he even had a wife who was into the BDSM. We'll get into that later as well. Um, who, who would let him, you know, obviously, um, who would, uh, per- willingly participate in different things with him involving like BDSM because she was into it as well, but it just like, wasn't enough for him. He, he wanted, like you said, he wanted to go, he wanted to cross that line of consent and like fine and normal and, and healthy, safe BDSM to like, no, I want, and I want to actually rape someone. I want to actually, experience someone who's actually uh fear in fear of her life you know what i mean um fearing for her life and fearing for her safety and obviously that is is just it's insane and it's very um well he was sadistic so he wanted to yeah make sure that they were um feeling immense pain during this all you know during all, all their experiences but yeah um so yeah, so after that was kind of a long rabbit trail, right? Uh, yeah, I know. Like this is gonna end up being five parts just because we can't shut up and focus. That was all from breast bondage. Oh my god, I've okay. already forgot about that. Okay, so long story short, breast bondage. If it's consensual and you're being safe, then good for you. You guys do whatever you want to do. But obviously, if it's not consensual, just just don't, don't just don't do it. Just don't do drugs. Just don't. Just don't. Just don't. Just don't. Just don't. Yeah. Just get help if you need that. So while he did that, Shirley um, removed the victim's pubic hair, which also sounds extremely painful. Um, They performed several other acts of torment on this victim. 
And uh, the pain they caused on her was actually so immense that she passed out several times from it. Which, if anyone knows anything about kind of like uh, anatomy, biology, you know, your body kind of, that's like its defense mechanism when it just experiences so much pain. It'll just, just shut off. Yeah, just, you just black out, just pass out. Um, but she did it several times, which is crazy. That means they were doing this for a while. Uh, and that's another interesting thing that I noticed about David Parker Ray is like when he would kidnap his victims and like torture them, he would do so for a long time sometimes. Like he would do it for days, keep them for days, keep them for yeah. weeks even. Like it's crazy. Like how he was able to get away with this um, for such a long amount of time. But in total, David and Shirley kidnapped and likely killed four different women in 1957 alone. Um, David Parker Ray had become an accomplished torturer and serial killer at just 17 years old. That's crazy. That is just like... 17 years old. What was I doing when I was 17? I don't know. Playing in, in a band? <laughs> Playing music yeah. and uh, going to church? <laughs> yeah, that was me. I was going to church like three times, uh, three times a week. Yeah. And in marching band in high school and probably just... I didn't do much, honestly, outside yeah. <laughs> of school and church. I was pretty much just stayed home and uh, was on the internet or watching TV or playing my guitar or one or the other. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, like we're doing normal teenage boy stuff, you know. Um, and uh, but this guy was he was already a serial killer at this point in time, which is just baffling. Um, in 1958, David graduated from high school and found a job as a mechanic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He would work during the day and got out. To, I'm sorry, he would work during the day and go out to various bars at night. David met a 17-year-old girl, and they began a romantic relationship together. And after only a few months of dating, they got married in April of 1959. Apparently, right after his high school graduation, David hit a massive growth spurt and grew from 5'6 to full adult height of 6'2. That's a crazy growth spurt. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. Five, six to six foot two. So he hit that growth spurt. Uh, a few months after his wedding, he joined the military and got a job as a military mechanic. He was stationed in Korea, and many investigators believe that his sadistic antics of rape and torture did not stop while he was overseas. Um, David's time away from his wife put a strain on their relationship, and they ended up getting a divorce in 1961. So their marriage only lasted two years. Um, and just kind of like a spoiler alert, David was married a total of four times yeah. throughout his life, and none of his marriages really lasted a, yeah. a long amount of time. Um, in the winter of 1962, David married his second wife um, just a year later, uh, but this marriage would fall uh, fail very quickly as well. Um, they filed for divorce only after only three months together. <laughs> Just yeah, like a, it's like a Kim Kardashian. Have, the note I have, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Kim Kardashian's like, uh, before the Kardashians, there was the rage. Kim, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, baby. I love you, okay? I didn't mean it like that. Don't worry. It's not like you had a chance anymore. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say, uh, on the second one, uh, I had made a note that in the book he mentions that we just didn't click. That was basically all he had to say about it. We just didn't click, so we, <laughs> we divorced after three months. Like, Jeez. Um, and there were no details as to why, to though. Why? My guess would be maybe, like, a sexual hang-up. You think so? Maybe. It's, it's quite, yeah. pro quite probable, honestly. Um, yeah, so, like, yeah, like I said, only three months. They divorced after that. Uh, he was also honorably discharged from the army, and after that, he moved back to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he got a job driving a cement truck. Um, during this whole time, David Parker Ray continued to kidnap, torture, and rape women. 
He claimed about two women a year, but sometimes more. Um, these victims are all un- unidentified. So that was like his going rate. He, he would abduct, rape, and murder about one to two women a year. Again, yeah. it would fluctuate, but that's like the average. Yeah, that was always his claim that he like would kill one woman at least a year. Um, quick thought. Um, were women at that time, were women allowed in the military at that time yet? No, right? I don't think so, no. No, because that was something that just came to my mind. I was like, oh my God, what if he actually did it to some of the women there but I don't um, think they were I don't think they were in allowed in the military yet no they were not yeah, yeah. luckily but yeah you're right that's a good point because he probably would have he definitely would have yeah he probably would and he Jesus. probably would have gotten away with it because he's a white cis male and yeah. uh it was in what 1960s so yeah it's crazy but you know investigators like they they believe that he was still doing he was still raping and murdering women in Vietnam was it Vietnam no Korea Oh yeah, when he was overseas, he was yeah. probably yeah. They were speculating he was still doing it. Yeah, overseas, he's got victims across the Pacific. Yeah, dude. Which, if you think about it, he 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 really. I mean, I I definitely buy into that. I think he was. And actually, now that I think about it, because they were in the middle of war, like they probably may have even known about it and just let it slide because it was on the enemy. Yep, I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah. Um, so they fed in. They would have been. I mean. I can't. I mean, there's no evidence. Yeah, there's no evidence, speculation. So I'm not like speaking anything against the army or military or troops or anything. I'm just saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying if that did happen, it's like the people who were there at the time encouraged it and let it slide. Like that's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, crazier things have happened, you know. Have they? I feel like they have. Okay. <laughs> You're just like okay. <laughs> you just you just take it. <laughs> You're just like, all right. You're, you're, all right, I believe you're, you. You're going to fight it? You're the one doing it. This is your podcast. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Let's do it. <laughs> we need more yes men here. Okay. <laughs> now he's a control freak. <laughs> right? Oh. oh, no. What have I become? All right. Um, so <laughs> during the year of 1963, David abducted uh, two girls with the sole purpose of trying a new torture technique on them. Uh, one of the victims was a 22-year-old victim he picked up at a bar and the other was a 25-year-old hitchhiker. Um, David began experimenting with electroshock therapy. Um, with this particular torture, he would clamp electrical wiring, like jumper cables, yeah. uh, to his victim's breasts. And he would then send electricity coursing through her body. He wanted to inflict as much pain as possible. Um, but he didn't want to kill his victim, so he would only use enough electricity to make, them, to make the victim feel as though they were like burning from the inside out. Um, it is very unlikely that these two women survived, uh, because considering that this was his first time using electroshock as a torture technique and he was just learning. So he was taking it too far. Yeah, and killing him. exactly. His inexperience coupled with his sadistic nature, probably not a good result. Probably means that he ended up killing both of them. Um, which is obviously horrible. Um, in 1963, David Parker would have been 23 years old. Um, but he had already abducted, raped, tortured, and killed at least 10 women at the time. So, uh, wow, that's, that's like almost around my age. It's like a couple years younger and he's already killed two people. That's crazy. Um, in 1966, David met Glenda Burdine, an 18 year old girl who had a young toddler son named Ron. Um, they dated for a short time and quickly married. 
On May 2nd, 1967, Glenda gave birth to her to her and David's newborn daughter, yep. Glenda Jean Ray, who they would AKA. later call Jesse, Jesse Ray. Jesse Ray. I thought you were going to be more dramatic with that. <laughs> <laughs> you were just like, Jesse Ray. All right, <laughs> Oh, yeah, because I was like, they later would call Jesse Ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and the reason they called her Jesse was so that they could distinguish between her and her mom because they had the same name. Yeah. Um, for a few short I didn't months, even think about that. Yeah, you didn't. Like, I was just wondering where did Jess, uh, Jesse come from, and then mm. there it is. So it actually right. came from Toy Story 2. It hadn't come out yet, but um, <laughs> they went to a fortune teller and just kind of. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> All right, so uh, where were we? <laughs> okay, a, f- a few short months. Um, for a few short months, David lived with Glenda and his two kids, but then folded under the pressure of family life and abandoned his family altogether. Um, after, after this, David became a drifter and would travel all across New Mexico and Arizona. Um, eventually in the fall of 1969, he moved back home. He moved back home to Albuquerque and began dating Glenda a second time. Uh, and she welcomed him back with open arms. So... Yeah, so I guess they he lived with her for a couple months, and then he was just like, yeah, this is not for me, this family life. So then he became a drifter, Yeah, and then he kind of went back to her, I guess. Um, in 1970, he moved his family to Tulsa, Oklahoma. His children claimed that he treated them um, nicely and was a laid-back father. They said he rarely showed signs of anger, and he never lashed out at them. Um, however, even as he was playing the role of father... And family man, he was still stalking and abducting women to fulfill his sexual fantasies, um, taking at least two, one to two women a year. Um, so I, fu- I found that interesting when I read that, that his children like say that they never really saw him angry at all. Yeah. Um, which is crazy because then if you look back to his childhood, people say that they never really saw him angry either. Like he wasn't really... Yeah, he was one of those real... Um, he suppresses it. Yeah. I mean, he... Uh... Or it could be, going back to psychopaths and sociopaths, it could be that he's just numb to the things that would normally make people angry. He just kind of rolls with it uh, and is unaffected by it and stays focused on whatever he's planning on doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, In 1973, when he was just 33 years old, he kidnapped five different women. Uh, two were sisters he picked up while they were hitchhiking. Uh, he tortured them for five days. Um, and two girls he picked up at a bar before torturing them for a weekend. Uh, and then the fifth victim, the fifth woman he abducted, was a 30-year-old who had her infant son with her uh, when she hitchhiked a ride from David Parker Ray. He took her and her son to a location titled E.B. Tent, East Side. Um, in his journal, that's what it's written as. Uh, yeah. Investigators believe this stood for east side of Elephant Butte Lake. That's what I was starting to think. Yeah. yeah. And um, in his notes, he says that the infant boy was a pain, but he states, quote, Mama isn't bad. This guy's <laughs> guy fucked up. Uh, investigators believed he likely killed this woman and her child and dumped their bodies in the lake, Elephant Butte Lake. Yeah. Which reportedly, I think his, well, we'll find out later, but... Reportedly, he supposedly dumped quite a few bodies in this lake. Yeah, that's the assumption. That's the assumption, yeah. Yeah. Um, Throughout the 1970s, David moved his family to Victoria, Texas. 
Yeah. I had found out that he had lived in a couple different places in Texas, and I was like, Jesus Christ. Dude, yeah. I was like, because he never stopped his crimes, you know? So yeah. he, it's very possible he had, like, several Texas victims. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's actually likely, not even possible. It's likely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So throughout the 1970s, he was living in Victoria, Texas, where he ran a gas station, uh, and then he moved his family back to Albuquerque, where he got a job working for the railroad. Um, during all this time, his killings never stopped as he maintained his usual pace of killing one to two women a year. Um, also during this time, David Parker Ray also began building his relationship with his daughter, Jessie, mm-hmm. uh, and they started becoming close. From a very young age, Jessie knew about her father's violent sexual fantasies and activities. He yeah. normalized like sadistic sexual practices by exposing her to graphic and violent sexual images at a very young age. So... Similar to the way that, you know, his father exposed him to the, like, BDSM and, like, pornographic images when yeah. he was young. He's, like, kind of carrying on that, like, sick, twi- twisted tradition of doing that with him, with his daughter, you know, as a way to bond with her. Um, which is just obviously perverse. It just shows you where he is, like, psychologically, you know, um, how unhinged he is. He supposedly made no effort to hide his victims from Jesse. Uh, and she was actually most likely around when he had, like, several of his, like, kidnapped victims. Um, so she most likely saw this when she was young. Um, and she had, uh, I mean, cause she, because she was so young, she had no way of knowing that what her father was doing was wrong or, or evil. Um, she, you know, just kind of assumed that it was, like, a normal thing that people did. Yeah, yeah. Because um, so, when you're a kid, you don't... You learn right and wrong from your surroundings. So if you see your parents doing something, you don't automatically think that it's wrong. Um, I was to think by then she had learned that, you know, murder was wrong. So if she saw him killing somebody, she would have freaked out. But just sexually abusing someone, I don't mean to say just like it's nothing, but you you know what I mean, Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh sexually abusing someone she's probably like i guess this is normal mm-hmm. you know especially when they're constantly drifting moving around she's not uh be there's no consistency in her life so she's not sticking around in anywhere long enough to like make friends and learn how other people live it's just her whole world is her her and her parents and i forgot did she have siblings no no well so she has she, actually she has a step sibling ron Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So it was just her, her parents, and her stepbrother, and they're just moving around all the time. So all she knows is the world that her father is showing her. Yeah. So she doesn't know, at the time at least, she didn't know any better. I'm pretty sure as she got older, she started to get wise and realize that it was wrong. But by then, Sorry, it, was damage normal, is done. it was damage is done, and it's normalized for her. She's like, well, this is what I like now. This is what I'm into. This is who I am. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so on that note, so for unknown reasons, David and his wife, Glenda, which is Jesse's mom divorced in 1981 when he was 41 years old. Um, again, there's not really any reasons given for that. They just, um, filed for divorce. Uh, in 1982, David moved to Phoenix, Arizona and got a job at an auto shop where he and the business owner ran, um, it was a newer business up and coming. So he and the business owner ran the business together Essentially, they were kind of like business partners. Um, it was here that David Parker Ray began making a lot of money uh, because the business began to take off. At this point, David had more money than he had ever made in his whole life. 
Um, so he decided to buy a second home. In 1983, when David was 43 years old, he began leasing a plot of land in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Mm. Yes, I did not make that up. That is the name of the city. Truth or Consequences. Interesting name. Are you going to cover how they got that name? Uh, I don't even know how they got that name. I, I Apparently, the uh, I mean, it's not that imperative to the case, but... <laughs> we don't want it, Michael. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, <go ahead. laughs> well, no, I mean, a little... No, 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 go The ahead. one <laughs> fun fact of this story... Uh, um, is that they, it was like in the fifties, there was this like radio show called truth or consequences. And at one point they, uh, they had like this, I guess you could call it a contest where they're like any town that is willing to name, uh, change their town's name to the name of the show, truth or consequences, uh, will come and do a show in your town and we'll have this big old parade and celebrate, you know, and whatnot. And so Truth wow. or Consequences was willing to change the name of their town for this little radio show. Um, and from that point on, like every year they would have, you know how like in New Orleans they have, you know, Mardi Gras and all that. Well, for Truth or Consequences, once a year, their thing was celebrating the name, uh, the day they changed their name and the, the host of the show would come and be a part of the parade and everything. Wow. Uh, That's interesting. And so... I was to think if they changed it once, they'd change it now. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, unless, of course, you know, uh, true crime fanatics generate enough, uh, enough, uh, what do you call it, uh, tourism that they're mm -hmm. like, I guess we'll just keep the name so people keep coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's got, a, got history to it now. Which apparently this area actually already was kind of a touristy place because, I mean, for us, Elephant Butte Lake is a the place of a notorious hor horrific crime scene but apparently for a long time it was just a good vacation spot for people to you know go chill out on the lake go camping in the park yada yada yeah know. wow <laughs> do you know what it was called before truth or consequences like what it changed its name from you know the book doesn't say wow otherwise i would have wrote that down somewhere <laughs> yeah yeah that's i mean that's yeah. an interesting story um, it's very interesting yeah, so... Of course, they stopped having that festival after really? David. Yeah. Did they really? Yeah, because oh. the whole thing was canceled the year that he got to... In 99, when he was found out, like, you know, yeah. even the, uh, the, the host of the show, he had been showing up every year for that festival, and then that year that they found out about David Parker Ray, he was like, yeah, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah. <I don't, laughs> Plans canceled. Yeah, I don't blame yeah. him, man. Dang. Okay, wow. Yeah. Very interesting. So, yeah, so that year he moved, uh, when he was 43, he moved, um, or he didn't move, I'm sorry. He bought a second home in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Uh, he would spend most of his time working in Phoenix, Arizona at the shop, but on the weekends he would be in New Mexico, so he would travel on the weekends back to his second home. Um, also during this time, David began making connections and becoming involved with the underground BDSM community in Phoenix. Um, it was through this connection and community that David met a woman named Joni Lee, Joni Lee seemed to be a good match for David because she was into the same kind of BDSM and kinky sex that he was. Um, he and Joni Lee got married, uh, making this his fourth and final marriage. No one knows for sure if Joni ever knew or participated in any of David Parker Ray's crimes. However, her comfort with his sexual fetishes uh, allowed him the freedom to invest his money and also work on constructing his own sex toys and torture devices. And um, 
it's believed that he would often test out these devices on Joni herself, consensually, of course, uh, and then he would use her responses and feedback uh, to like as a way to improve or tweak his designs, which is, yeah. is crazy to me. But like that's kind of like uh, touching on what we touched on earlier, as far as like he had people who were willing to do this yeah, consensually. I was he had a wife. Back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and apparently even you know um, Cindy Hendy was also you know willing to participate in some of his fantasies, uh, not just in the fact that she was an accomplice, but also let him do some stuff on her, mm-hmm. which allegedly he would tone it down for her because he didn't want to like scare her away. He wanted mm-hmm. to keep her close by. That's the funny thing is that some would say that uh, a killer and rapist like David Parker Ray becomes that way because he develops this aggression and resentment towards women because his mother neglected him. His grandmother treated him like shit. His aunt, um, raped him but yet he always needed a woman close to him mm. it's like i don't, I don't know yeah that. you're right about that yeah. actually my research that i was reading it said that despite like even while because like for the 45 years of his crime spree he was always you know abducting raping and murdering right yeah but even despite this he always wanted he always sought like a romantic relationship with a woman yeah like you know um like a steady relationship so that's why he was always going into all these marriages and they would fail and then he would date people you know so yeah you're 100 percent right about that it is crazy and it's interesting to think about um that he was like that uh, but yeah so i guess the the fact that he was married to Joni lee and she was like part or a member of the bdsm community in phoenix like in a way it was like another like advantage yeah let's just say for him because it was like cool like she's cool with this so she won't think it's weird that I'm working on these sex toys or that I'm like experimenting on her. Yeah. So if anything, yeah, it really just helped him in his mission to just like, you know, uh, I don't even know <laughs> what to say. About his it. goal to like, it's quite possible that he was fantasizing just the way he would fantasize about um, raping people with a beer bottle as his weapon, broken beer bottle as his weapon. Mm-hmm. Um he probably got the idea, the, the design for the toy box in his mind, like years and years before he ever actually built it. Uh, he probably had it all. Pl- Someone as meticulous as him probably had it all planned out uh, as to what toys he wanted, how he was going to organize the room, everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and so when I think about it now, Joni Lee is one of the factors that like helped him perfect his craft so to speak. Yep. You know, he was coming up with all these designs because a lot of the stuff in the toy box was handmade. Mm-hmm. He would like build, you know, all these dildos and machines and things himself. And, uh, I guess she was his, uh, guinea pig. So to speak, you know? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So I think, I, I think he definitely used, uh, obviously he used like some of his devices on her. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. Of course, it never goes into specifics specifics of what he used exactly. But I'm I'm pretty sure he didn't use everything, like um, like the heavy duty stuff on her because like in the toy box, one of the craziest things they found obviously was like this oversized dildo with like nails sticking out of the bottom of it. Dude, like, oh base. my god, I saw. I've seen pictures of it before, but it wasn't until I saw this one particular documentary where one of the guys from the New Mexico State Police actually like went over it. They like took you on like a little tour of the toy box and showed you some of the things that were in there. And I had seen it before and I'm like, what the fuck is up with that dildo? Yeah. I mean, what even is that? Yeah. And then in this documentary, he explains it, how he put 
David Ray basically and put these nails, like the, the dildos made out of like pipe, like I guess PVC pipe, type pipe. Yeah. And the, he pierced it with some nails so that the nails would go in. There's one ring of nails around it, the small ring of nails, and then a bigger ring of nails mm-hmm. on the outside um, at the very base of the dildo. And once he explained how it worked and what... Are you looking it up right now? Yep. I mean, I've already seen it, but <laughs> yeah. I just want to like kind of have it in front of me just yeah. to see. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, it's one of the most... It, it was freaky looking, you know? Yeah. And once he explained how it works or what the whole purpose was, like the design... I mean, which I guess doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure it out but i don't know for me i just looked at it like what the fuck is that you know yeah uh and once he explained it i was like god damn that is just no it's freaking horrible man yeah, yeah. no it is it was horrible it's like horrible. the nails are basically gonna rip the flesh that was the point as they would rip the yeah. flesh around the vagina and the thighs as it was being inserted like ugh. and then imagine that and, and for, for you guys listening, obviously, uh, I'm going to be posting these pictures on Instagram, on, on our page, um, on the page. So you'll, I'm going to be posting several pictures from the toy box of, of the different like devices he had in there, um, pictures of David Ray himself and all that. But yes, yeah, so you'll be able to see what we're talking about. But it's essentially, it might be one of the most uh, famous like toys that he like came up with, you know? That, this because is the one that's the like, freakiest looking one he's got, yeah. or at least that I've seen. It's definitely, yeah. I definitely. mean, apparently they found hundreds, literally hundreds. It's documented hundreds of devices in there. Yeah. Um, which chances are the re- the only way he was able to fit hundreds is because a lot of them are very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you sure. know, clamps, sm- certain, you know, compactable things like whips, ropes, chains. You know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, it's it's insane because yeah. No, I haven't thought about this. <laughs> oh, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I got a little too detailed there. Like, just being clear, I'm an overanalytical person. Like, I just yeah. I'm just figuring that's how you would fit hundreds of stuff into that little ass trailer. Because by the looks of it, it just didn't seem as big as you would picture it in your mind. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was reading the book, I'd picture it in my mind to try and gauge what's going on and. Um, I pictured it being much bigger. And once I actually saw pictures and footage, I'm like, damn, that's tiny. And he, yeah. how did he manage to do all that in there? But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Jesse Ray knew all about her father's crimes. And by the time she was 19 years old, she had already taken part in some of them. Um, because she was raised by David Parker Ray, she grew up witnessing several of his dark activities and so she grew up you know believing that his sexual fetishes and criminal behavior was just it's you know normal um she knew it was illegal but she didn't believe that there was anything wrong with what he was doing um and in june of 1986 jesse and her father um david yeah so june of 1986 jesse and her father david got into a massive fight and we don't know what exactly caused the fight but we do know that Jesse became like so infuriated with him that she decided to get him sent to prison. So it is here that she contacted the FBI office in Albuquerque and she told them all about her father and his sadistic activities. Um, and so apparently the phone conversation lasted a very long time. She was like going into as much detail as she could. Yeah. Um, not only did she tell them, you know, that he would abduct, torture, and rape his victims, but she also told them that once he was through with his victims, he would either kill them and dispose of the body 
or transport them south of the border to Mexico where he sold them into yeah, sexual yeah. slavery. Yeah. I was about to bring that up because I, I remember that wow. part. Um, and, you know, more and more I'm, we're going over this, the more and more I'm starting to realize why they didn't find any bodies is because, uh, like I mentioned before we started recording, I don't think he killed them all. And, I mean, obviously there's proof, there's substantial evidence, I guess, mm -hmm. or some kind of evidence. I don't know if court of law would consider that substantial. But, um... Because apparently even the hardest evidence isn't enough for them. But um, <laughs> yeah. as I've come to find researching this. Um, but uh, so he sells some to sexual slavery. And then also the fact that he moved around so much. He was in Oklahoma. He was in Arizona. He was in a couple different places in Texas. You didn't see it there. But I had heard in another podcast that he didn't just live in Victoria, Texas. He also was in Fort Hood for a little while. Oh, wow. Um, and then Jesse Ray, I don't know if her, if David ever went with her, but apparently Jesse Ray loved to go to Galveston. But anyway, mm. so they moved around a lot. So like he, the chances are, uh, that the reason they never find any bodies isn't just because it's a convenient place to hide bodies. It's because they're literally everywhere across four States and across the national border. Yeah. Like they're everywhere. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, that definitely makes it a lot more difficult to obviously find anything, any, any sort of evidence. But, um, I also found that it was crazy. Cause like, like I said, before I, before we had talked about like doing this episode or really doing the, um, covering David Parker Ray in the case, um, yeah. I had already known about him and, and his crimes, yeah. but I had never, I, I'd never known that he actually sold, you know, some of his victims into sex slavery. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't either, know that. So I started researching for this podcast yeah so then when i found that out i was like dang this guy's like a whole other level too and you know not only is he raping and murdering and torturing but he's also sell just selling them as slaves like that's crazy he's yeah. like literally done everything i think the only thing he hasn't done is like uh well i was gonna say pedophilia but he actually has raped underage women so he has so technically there's really nothing and he killed an infant so technically this guy has done everything um i guess other than cannibalism but yeah. Actually, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, dang, you know something. Oh, man. But yeah, so this guy's definitely, you know, an 11 on that scale of evil. Uh, maybe I should just make that a thing. You know, every episode just rank the serial killers on the scale of evil, 1 to 10. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I might not actually do that. Um, so yeah, so the FBI, when, so uh, Jesse went to the FBI, was telling him all this information, um, and the FBI was shocked to hear this, obviously. Um, but based on this information, they were confident that they could take this guy down. They, they were confident that they could, you know, make an arrest. Um, so for the first time ever in his life, you know, in 1986, David Parker Ray was now under the observation and scrutiny of the law. However, David Parker Ray would not be stopped or discovered as a criminal until 13 years later in 1999. That's the craziest part about this part of the story is that he told, like, she literally handed him over mm -hmm. to the FBI Yep. And nothing fucking happened. Bro, that's why... And this case is literally why NWA wrote that song, Fuck the Police. <laughs> there you have it, ladies Fun and fact. <laughs> Fun fact. Just let you know. We didn't know that, but... Compton knew what was happening <laughs> and truth or consequences. <laughs> they did. They did, you know? It's crazy. But actually, that's where we're going to stop this first part of the episode. Um, I think that's like a perfect stopping point, actually. That's exactly where I had planned. Um, and we will pick up next episode 
on the remainder. So for the next episode, we're going to cover, you know, um, the rest of his crimes or the most popular crimes is going to be covered. Um, the investigation, which ultimately leads to his capture and, you know, what, what ends up happening to him and essentially everybody else. All right. So we're going to go ahead and leave it there and we'll pick it up uh, next week. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the devil's hour, a podcast for the strange and unusual. Don't forget to give us a like on Facebook, um, at the devil's hour podcast and on Instagram at the devil's hour podcast. Um, if you give us a follow and a like, it'll help you stay up to date with our new episodes. Um, we plan, I plan to release some merch soon ish. Um, so yeah, you definitely, if you give us a follow and a like, you'll be able to stay up to date on that. Uh, and also we are taking recommendations of future episodes or cases you want us to cover. Um, again, it's not just true crime. It's also paranormal horror. I also plan to do some future episodes on like movie reviews or like movie rankings. So I'm going to want to like, that's going to be so much fun. Yeah. I love, I'm a big movie buff, but like, I want to rank, like I'm going to rank like the whole Halloween franchise. I'm going to do all Friday the 13th franchise, a bunch of different franchises. And then I'm going to rank like possession films. I have like a lot of ideas. I love possession films. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm more of a slasher guy, but I do like a good possession film. I but on slashers, I totally want to be here for if you cover Child's Play. Child's Play? You like I Child's love Play? That series. Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be good because I'm actually pretty inexperienced with that, that particular franchise. Yeah. I think I've only seen maybe like one. But yeah, so we'll definitely do that. But thank you guys for tuning in. Um, I'll see you next time. Bye.